Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, chapter 26. This chapter contains the end of the Savior's third, or on the morrow sermon, as well as his ascension back to the Father. As we come to the end of his sermon, Mormon will resort to summarizing the remainder of the Savior's teachings. And as he does so, we will discover that Jesus taught the people a great deal more that is not transmitted to us in this record. Verses 3 and 6 of this chapter will say, And he did expound all things, even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory. Yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements should melt with fervent heat, and the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll, and the heavens and the earth should pass away. And now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. In fact, we will then come to learn in verse 7, that Mormon has only written a lesser part of the things which Jesus taught the people. Behold, I was about to write them, Mormon tells us, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Thus, these tremendous crowning chapters in the book of Third Nephi, where we have been so privileged to hear from the Savior directly, are still only the lesser part of the things which he taught. This leads us to treasure what Mormon has included all the more. We can study the Savior's words carefully and gratefully, knowing that one day shall the greater things be made manifest unto them, as verse 9 says. We'll also discover in this chapter that the Savior stayed with the people on this occasion after having returned to them in 3 Nephi chapter 19 on the morrow for a three-day period. Then, Mormon tells us in verses 13 and 14, that he appeared to the people intermittently thereafter. Therefore, I would that ye should behold that the Lord did truly teach the people for the space of three days, and after that he did show himself unto them oft, and did break bread oft, and bless it, and give it unto them. Well, this idea fills us with wonder, I think. It creates the compelling potential that the Savior could appear in the same intermittent manner to his sheep into the indefinite future including today. There certainly is evidence that he continues to do so, in fact, ranging from his visits to Joseph Smith to lesser-known accounts, such as his visit to Lorenzo Snow in the Salt Lake Temple. There are undoubtedly other visits to his sheep that have taken place in this dispensation that are unrecorded as of yet and that remain consistent with the doctrine of the Second Comforter. As the Bible Dictionary teaches us, two comforters are spoken of, The first is the Holy Ghost. The second comforter is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When any man obtains this last comforter, he will have the personage of Jesus Christ to attend him or appear unto him from time to time 
and even he will manifest the Father unto him. That comes out of Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 3 through 4. This reminds us to remain ever ready for the appearance of the bridegroom to the wedding feast, or of the shepherd to his sheep. For his faithful, such an appearance has the potential of happening at any time. When such a holy thing happens for each of us, may we not know any better then than we know now, as Bruce R. McConkie put it in his final testimony, that he is God's almighty Son, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. Well, with those introductory thoughts, let's look at the structure of this 21-verse chapter before moving into verse 1 for a reading. Verses 1 through 5 take us away from the actual text of the Savior's teachings and into the realm of summary. We find here that Jesus expounds upon his teachings of the prophets, and in so doing he reveals, quote, all things which should come upon the face of the earth from the beginning until he should come in glory. So we'll read about that in these first five verses, and they will very gracefully bring the Savior's sermon to a close for us. In verses 6 through 12, Mormon will do something for us that he hasn't done for a while, but it's still familiar to us. He turns from the text and provides us with an editorial aside. He explains to us that as a trial of faith, he is directed to provide us with only the lesser part of the things which Jesus taught the people. And greater things will only be made manifest to those who believe these things. As he will explain in verse 10, They that will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Then in verses 13 and 14, Mormon moves back into the storytelling format, saying that the Savior teaches the people for three days, and then intermittently thereafter, as I mentioned in the introduction. So it would appear for us that when he appeared to the people in 3 Nephi chapter 19, that was the morrow that he spoke of at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17, and that that episode then extended for three days. Then after that point, as with the New Testament, there seems to have been a period where the lives of the Savior's disciples were punctuated by these intermittent appearances of the Savior. What a time that would have been. And now in verses 15 and 16, we read that the Savior ascends back into heaven. He does this first after healing many, as we will read in these two verses, and causing children to utter things that cannot be written. As verse 16 will say, Yea, even babes did open their mouths and utter marvelous things. So this brings the second appearance or the second visit of the Savior to a close. Uh, Throughout these chapters, I've referred to this as the ending of his third sermon. So, by my way of reckoning this, his first sermon was that which we often refer to as the Sermon at the Temple, spanning from 3 Nephi chapters 12 through 14, or perhaps even the end of 3 Nephi chapter 11 through 14. Then, what I like to call the second sermon happened at the same time, but there's just a break. Uh, he then looks upon the multitude and, and enters into a new subject. When in chapters 15 and 16, he begins to talk about Israel, the identity of Israel, and the the scattering of Israel, the ultimate gathering, and also of other sheep, uh, which are not of this fold, but they too are of the same shepherd. So that I like to think of as his second sermon, even though it's taking place on this first day. Then he leaves them when he ascends at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 18, 
after having instituted the sacrament and having performed so many miracles, in 3 Nephi chapter 17, he leaves them, then returns on the morrow, in 3 Nephi chapter 19, after uh, the miracles that take place there, he resumes with his sermon in 3 Nephi chapter 20, verse 10. So when he resumes with his second sermon, I have referred to it here as, as the third sermon, but perhaps it would be better referred to as his second sermon. Uh, in any event, we're coming now to the end of his second visit to the people as we come to the end of 3 Nephi chapter 26, and the Savior ascends into heaven again. In the final verses of this chapter, verses 17 through 21, Mormon will turn our attention to who remains after the Savior has ascended, and that, of course, is to the disciples, and how it is then that they administer his gospel throughout their society. Remember, this was a very broken society prior to the Savior's arrival in 3 Nephi chapter 11, so there's much work to be done. So we find out in these verses that the disciples teach and baptize and minister and otherwise organize the Church of Christ. Doing so, as always in the Scriptures, involves the preaching of the Word, but also the administering of the ordinances, particularly that of baptism. With that, let's return to verse 1 for a reading. And remember that the Savior has just finished quoting Malachi, chapters 3 and 4. In the chapter before that, he provided some commentary on Isaiah, and then met with Nephi and the disciples and looked at the records that they had kept. Then in the chapter before that, in 3 Nephi chapter 22, he had quoted Isaiah chapter 54 in its entirety. So those are the things that he's been teaching. So now, verse 1, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had told these things, so all of these things that we've taken in since uh, 3 Nephi chapter 20, he expounded them unto the multitude, And he did expound all these things unto them, both great and small. And he saith, These scriptures which ye had not with you, the Father commanded that I should give unto you, for it was wisdom in him that they should be given unto future generations. So this seems to have reference to his decision to quote Malachi, Malachi chapters 3 and 4. These scriptures which ye had not with you. The Nephites couldn't have had those with them because they left around the period of the Babylonian captivity for the New World, and the record-keeping went on after they left, when the Jews went into the Babylonian captivity, and then ultimately were released through um, the auspices of the merciful King Cyrus. They came back and rebuilt, and they still kept more records. And so Malachi comes out of that era. The Institute Manual says, Jesus Christ emphasized the importance of accurate scriptural records. In addition to the fulfillment of the prophecies of Samuel the Lamanite being added to the scriptural record, the Savior followed the command of the Father to give the people in America scriptures which ye had not. In this, he quoted the writings of Malachi, an Old Testament prophet who lived nearly 200 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. Malachi's teachings would not have been on the plates of brass since he lived 200 years after Lehi left Jerusalem. And also, we can remember that we have just recently learned that this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 in particular can be found in all four standard works. It is found in 3 Nephi chapter 25. It's found, of course, in Malachi chapter 4. It's also found in Doctrine and Covenants section 2, and then in Joseph Smith History chapter 1, verses 37 through 39. Verse 3, And he did expound all things, even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory. 
So now we're returning to Mormon's narrative voice, as we can see here. He's acting as narrator. Uh, And so verse 2 is the last time that we get to hear from the Savior personally in this period as we come to the end of this sermon. So coming back again to verse 3, And he did expound all things even from the beginning until the time that he should come in his glory. Yea, even all things which should come upon the face of the earth, even until the elements should melt with fervent heat, and the earth should be wrapped together as a scroll, and the heavens and the earth should pass away. When the phrase all things is used, we might think of John's great panoramic vision, for example, when he seemed to see this same scope of events, as did Nephi, of course, in his vision of all things. Ogden and Skinner have written, By expounding all things, including the mission of Elijah and the turning of the hearts of fathers and children to each other, Jesus may have caused intense temple activity among the Nephite-Lamanite civilization. They must have received an endowment, eternal marriage, and other sacred ordinances. What and how much they did in their labors for the dead remains to be revealed. As we try and better understand this idea that the heavens and the earth should pass away, as it says in verse 3, Doctrine and Covenants section 101 verses 24 through 34 uh, certainly help with that, and, and here are excerpts from those verses. And every corruptible thing, both of man, or of the beasts of the field, or of the fowls of the heavens, or of the fish of the sea, that dwells upon the face of the earth, shall be consumed. And also that of element shall melt with fervent heat, and all things shall become new, that my knowledge and glory may dwell upon all the earth. Additionally, of course, the book of Revelation speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. That can be found in Revelation chapter 21. Verse 4, And even unto the great and last day, when all people and all kindreds and all nations and tongues shall stand before God to be judged of their works, whether they be good or whether they be evil, if they be good to the resurrection of everlasting life. And so now Mormon will speak of two tracks that one can follow. Think again of the divisive nature of the word in the sense that our regard for it and our fidelity to it sets us upon one path or another. So verse 5, if they be good to the resurrection of everlasting life, and if they be evil to the resurrection of damnation. So resurrection is the common denominator for both, but there is the resurrection of everlasting life or there is the resurrection of damnation. Then Mormon continues, being on a parallel, the one on the one hand and the other on the other hand, according to the mercy and the justice and the holiness which is in Christ, who was before the world began. So there is Mormon's beautiful summary of the Savior's teachings. He brings us to a graceful end of his third sermon after he has quoted Malachi 4 by providing us with his words just very briefly at the beginning of this chapter, then summarizing the rest of his teachings taking us through verse 5. Now, Mormon will speak editorially, and he will discuss uh, what it is that he has and has not included in this record. He'll also make it clear that these decisions aren't a matter of his own discretion, but that he is directed by the Lord in what he includes and what he does not. Verse 6, And now there cannot be written in this book even a hundredth part of the things which Jesus did truly teach unto the people. But behold, the plates of Nephi do contain the more part of the things which he taught the people. And these things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people. Let's just pause there for a minute and remember that what Mormon is giving us, extending all the way from Mosiah to this moment in the Book of Mormon, is Mormon's abridgment of the plates of Nephi. 
So he's telling us that the plates of Nephi from which he is taking an abridgment do contain the more part of the things which the Savior taught the people, but we're not privy to them because we're being given Mormon's abridgment. Then he continues by saying, And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles according to the words which Jesus has spoken. So uh, upon the Savior's promise that this would happen, Mormon is counting upon the fact that the Gentiles that the Savior has spoken of earlier in his sermon will be the mechanism for the delivery of the record that he is creating. Verse 9, And when they shall have received this, meaning this record, which is expedient that they should have first to try their faith, and if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. So that's a future event for us as well. Because right now, we do not have the entire plates of Nephi. We don't have all of the teachings of Jesus as they were recorded in the plates of Nephi, but instead, we are given Mormon's abridgment. Kent Jackson has written, In the Lord's mercy, he has revealed to us what in his wisdom he knows that we need. If we feast on and believe in what has been revealed already, more will be revealed to us either through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or through the revelation of more scripture at a later time. If we do not learn and thus do not gain faith in what the Lord has made known unto the world already, we are closing the door on wonderful opportunities. It is no wonder then that modern prophets have counseled us repeatedly to make scripture study an important part of our lives. So we can notice the poetry of what Mormon is doing here because as he was coming to the end of his summary of the Savior's teachings in verse 5, he talked about things being on a parallel, a track that those who are righteous will follow unto the resurrection of everlasting life, then a track that the wicked will follow unto the resurrection of damnation. So two tracks that run on a parallel. Now as he talks to us about his record, these two tracks manifest again in the way in which the word is received by his future readers. Some who receive and believe these things shall then have the greater things be made manifest. And on the other hand, here's what we read in verse 10. And if it so be that they who will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. This is similar, of course, to Alma's teachings in Alma chapter 12, when he talked about the greater or the lesser portion of the word. Then we get this very interesting piece of insight from Mormon as editor in verse 11, where we discover that he would have included more. Uh, That's what his editorial discretion would have told him to do. But clearly he is being directed by the Lord in what he includes for us in his abridgment. He tells us of an exchange that he had with the Lord in verse 11, as he was using his own best judgment to compile this record. Behold, I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi. But the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. We can just imagine Mormon going through this abridging process. If there was anything from the plates of Nephi that he should include in totality, he would have reasoned that this is it. But the Lord forbade him, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Ogden and Skinner have written, Not even the hundredth part of what the ancient prophets and historians wrote on the plates of Nephi is available to us at this point. Joseph Smith once remarked, If the church knew all the commandments, one half they would condemn through prejudice and ignorance. Jesus explained that he wants to try our faith. If we receive, believe, and live what we have been given, we will be given yet greater things. This is the established pattern to receive the mysteries of the kingdom. 
And there Alma 12 is, is referenced, as is Ether chapter 12. There are records which contain much of my gospel, which have been kept back because of the wickedness of the people, says Doctrine and Covenants section 6, verse 26. If we do not pay the price to search out and live by the teachings we have already been given, we will be condemned for it, and the greater things will continue to be withheld. This makes us think, of course, of Doctrine and Covenants section 84, verse 57. makes us think of President Ezra Taft Benson as well. It says, And they shall remain under this condemnation until they repent, and remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon, and the former commandments which I have given them. Verse 12, Therefore, and Mormon's use of the word therefore comes because of the exchange he had with the Lord in verse 11. Therefore, I, Mormon, do write the things which have been commanded me of the Lord, as opposed to what he thought he should include, which was all of it. And now I, Mormon, make an end of my sayings, and proceed to write the things which have been commanded me. Now, as Mormon says this, we know that he's getting very close to the end of his entire abridgment. There are just a few more chapters to go. He'll include 3 Nephi 27, 28, 29, and 30, then 4th Nephi, and that is the end of his abridgment. Here are two more pieces of commentary that deal with this idea of Mormon giving us a lesser part at this time so as to test our faith. Uh, First, this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. President Spencer W. Kimball taught that before obtaining greater manifestations or additional scripture, we must read and believe what has already been revealed. I have had many people ask me through the years, he said, when do you think we will get the balance of the Book of Mormon records? And I have said, how many in the congregation would like to read the sealed portion of the plates? And almost always there is a 100% response. And then I ask the same congregation, how many of you have read the part that has been opened to us? And there are many who have not read the Book of Mormon, the unsealed portion. We are quite often looking for the spectacular, the unobtainable. I have found many people who want to live the higher laws when they do not live the lower laws. Cheryl Brown has written in her contribution to the Nyman and Tate commentary on the Book of Mormon called Jacob Through Words of Mormon. In, uh, and then in the section that Brown wrote is called I Speak Somewhat Concerning That Which I Have Written. She said the following, From this statement and all the other reasons given by the Book of Mormon authors for not including certain things, two points can be easily drawn about the book and what the Lord intended that we get from it. One is the fact that the Book of Mormon is the Lord's book and that a correct understanding of it comes from Him alone. The other is that there is much more knowledge and truth available which we will receive only as we live in accordance with that which we already have. So now for the time being, Mormon is done speaking about his record, and he'll come back to the ministry of the Savior and orient us to where we are uh, with his ongoing ministry among these people. Verse 13, Therefore I would that ye should behold that the Lord truly did teach the people for the space of three days, and after that he did show himself unto them oft, and did break bread oft, and bless it, and give it unto them. We've seen him institute the sacrament in 3 Nephi chapter 18, and then we saw him administer the sacrament in 3 Nephi chapter 20 to an even larger multitude. Because of the way that he broke bread with the two disciples, Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus, we know that he also did it with small groups, and there are other instances in the New Testament. So we can see here that the Savior did show himself unto them oft after this three-day period, and that he often broke bread with them in this manner. 
Could this suggest to us that the times in which we are closest to the Savior are when we are participating in the sacrament ordinance? I think that's true. I think it also must be true that we're closest to him when we're in his temple. So again, the sermon that we were given and that we just finished was part of this three-day period that he spent with the people. And then again, there were intermittent visits thereafter. During this period of time, as we learn in verse 14, and it came to pass that he did teach and minister unto the children of the multitude of whom hath been spoken. So more interactions with the children in addition to what we read in 3 Nephi chapter 17. And he did loose their tongues and they did speak unto their fathers great and marvelous things, even greater than he had revealed unto the people. And he loosed their tongues that they could utter. Ogden and Skinner have written of these two verses, Mormon, the prophet historian, noted that Jesus taught the people for three days, and after that he did show himself unto them oft, and did administer some kind of sacred meal often, meaning perhaps the sacrament. Verse 14 describes what can happen when all of God's people are spiritually prepared, worthy, and receptive, with no wicked distracting. All of this will happen again at the second coming when telestial distractions are removed. The Lord will then reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, to quote Article of Faith number 9. The children's tongues were loosed, apparently speaking things beyond their mortal years, possibly penetrating the veil using the language of God, and revealing great and marvelous things about the premortal life and even the postmortal life, things even greater than what Jesus had taught these righteous disciples. And now in verses 15 and 16, we come to the Savior's ascension into heaven. And it came to pass that after he had ascended into heaven, the second time that he showed himself unto them. Remember now, the first time was the length of that day that began in the morning after the very long night in 3 Nephi chapter 11. And then the second time that he showed himself unto them, to use Mormon's words, has just ended. And as Mormon said, and had gone unto the Father after having healed all their sick and their lame and opened the eyes of their blind and unstopped the ears of the deaf, and even had done all manner of cures among them, and raised a man from the dead, and had shown forth his power unto them, and had ascended unto the Father. There is another way of interpreting this comment about three days, and Ogden and Skinner say it this way, This verse denotes the end of the second of the three-day personal ministry Jesus carried on among the Nephites. Notice that the last thing he did was perform powerful miracles of healing. So their way of interpreting this seems to be that there were three separate visits and each of those visits were a day. Uh, And that could also be true. If that's the case, then the third day is still to come when he returns to the people in 3 Nephi chapter 27. Verse 16, Behold, it came to pass on the morrow that the multitude gathered themselves together, and they both saw and heard these children. Yea, even babes did open their mouths and utter marvelous things. And the things which they did utter were forbidden that there should not any man write them. McConkie, Millet, and Top have written, One can scarcely imagine such deeply spiritual and profound things being uttered by little children. We are left to conjecture about their messages. Was the veil parted to allow them to speak of life in the first estate? Did they discourse upon life among the gods in a celestial environment? Did they reveal doctrinal mysteries which today's world could not receive? This was such a sacred manifestation, the content of these inspired utterances were of such a nature that mortal language could not adequately capture the true meaning and intent. In this sense, things of the Spirit are unspeakable. 
Now, in the final verses of this chapter, Mormon will give us a sense of how things proceeded after these great peak spiritual experiences, as the inevitable task will be to bring the Nephite society to some semblance of, a, of normalcy after all that has taken place, and of course to establish the church more fully among them. So verse 17 says, And it came to pass that the disciples whom Jesus had chosen began from that time forth to baptize, and to teach as many as did come unto them. And as many as were baptized in the name of Jesus were filled with the Holy Ghost. So who survived the coming of the Lord? The great cataclysmic storm that came in 3 Nephi chapter 8. Who was preserved at that time? Well, it was the righteous. Were some of those unbaptized? Yes, we can see that they were. Remember that the Savior said, O all ye that were spared, because ye were more righteous than they, will ye now not return and repent? So presumably there were those who were spared, who were in need of repentance and baptism, who may not have been members of the church. Another way to read this, of course, though, is that there is re-baptism going on. Nephi and his disciples were baptized in 3 Nephi chapter 19, and presumably they had been baptized earlier as well, but they are being baptized now under the new law. In any event, baptism and the receipt of the Holy Ghost, as we saw it in 3 Nephi chapter 19, are continuing forward as Mormon provides us with this narrative and is a critical part of the, of the spreading and establishing of the church among these people. Verse 18, And many of them saw and heard unspeakable things which are not lawful to be written. And there's that phrase again, not lawful to be written. There are other times in the third Nephi narrative where we get the impression that something can't be written because it's just simply too glorious it was phrased that way in both 3 Nephi chapter 17 and in 3 Nephi chapter 19. But here, the word not lawful is used. Ogden and Skinner have suggested the most sacred things, when given to those worthy of them, are not to be divulged, broadcast, or published to the world. They are the unspeakable things which are not lawful to be written. They are kept from others not because they are mysterious and secret, but because they are too sacred to share with the unprepared. We conclude that this ancient people, who for a long time than anyone else in all of history, who remained on earth, were able to sustain righteousness and a consecrated lifestyle, enjoyed the fullness of the gospel with the fullness of the sealing power, the fullness of the everlasting gospel including the endowment and higher ordinances, cannot be preserved in the written word. The Latter-day Saints are anxious for all people everywhere to learn from God's words in four volumes of Scripture but there are some higher things that cannot be published to the world. They can be obtained when righteous, prepared souls enter the holy temple. So that, of course, is a very insightful way of interpreting what Mormon is saying here in verse 18, that these unspeakable things which they saw and heard may have included the language of covenant-making that takes place in the temple. We can also consider this verse in Doctrine and Covenants section 64, verse 64, something we've referred to recently. Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred, and must be spoken with care, and by constraint of the Spirit. And in this there is no condemnation, and ye receive the Spirit through prayer, wherefore without this there remaineth condemnation. Now continuing to speak of these disciples and of the members of the church, in verse 19, And they taught, and did minister one to another, and they had all things in common among them, every man dealing justly one with another. Something similar seemed to be happening in the Old World among the Twelve Apostles and the church that they organized there under the direction of the resurrected Lord. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says, And all that believed were together and had all things common. The Institute Manual says this is the pattern in the Lord's church in every dispensation. His covenant people teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom and minister to one another in the fellowship of gospel bonds, for the Lord's people comprise one great family. Verse 20, And it came to pass that they did do all things even as Jesus had commanded them. Verse 21, And they who were baptized in the name of Jesus were called the Church of Christ. Well, this manner of living will be discussed more completely in the book of 4th Nephi. And we'll learn more about the way that they had all things in common and the way in which there was a complete absence of strife and contention. We'll read of that soon. First, of course, we'll read from 3rd Nephi 27. The Savior has yet to appear one more time and settle another matter of dispute among the apostles. He'll discuss the naming of the church and once again restate in such beautiful terms the doctrine of Christ. We have that and a great deal more to look forward to as we move into the final stretch of the book of 3rd Nephi. So for now, this brings us to the end of 3rd Nephi chapter 26. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.